Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old-fashioned active allocators of capital. It's nearly 18 months since the flexible office leasing company WeWorks pulled its IPO in New York, and its founder, Adam Newman, suffered an Icarus-like fall from grace. Since then, the world, and indeed the way we work, has been turned upside down. This is why it was great to speak to my guest this week, Jamie Dundas. He's the founder of Monday Works and The Refinery, which are both startups in the flexible workspace arena in London. Jamie was actually ahead of the curve on this. He started The Refinery in 2013, which we discuss, as well as the problem he was trying to solve. And then he pivoted to establish Monday Works, which is a consulting business. And if any of you are looking to get into the flexi office space, Jamie's the man to talk to. Uh, Jamie is great fun. Uh, do check out his website, uh, which are in the show notes, or indeed his blog, Monday Works, which is released on a weekly basis on Monday, I think. Without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. Jamie Dundas, welcome to the podcast. Jamie, what is the purpose of Monday Works? I set up Monday Works earlier this year uh, with a view to helping uh, newcomers to the flexible workspace market, um, so that's operators, um, and uh, landlords, CREs, and to be honest, anyone in the real estate world uh, with setting up and launching their own flexible workspace. Mm-hmm. And then taking and going back one step, um, you founded a company, uh, The Refinery. It's a shared workspace for early stage startups and, and freelancers. So um, we launched in 2013, um, back when you could have said the word co-working at a party and no one knew what on earth you meant. <laughs> um, it's exploded, though, the co-working industry yeah. since 2013. Yeah. Did you sort of come up with the idea in the first place? Well, it happened all quite organically with three friends, um, four of us all together. And we were looking for a workspace we could afford. We were all running kind of early stage startups ourselves. Um, And uh, it just made complete sense to us. So we took on a sort of part of a building um, and just filled it with our friends, our network. Um, And really the vision for it was we wanted a space that wasn't your kitchen table, (laughs) wasn't working from home. Um, And we wanted to create an environment that felt like home for creatives. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was targeted very much at creative, at the creative industry. Yeah, 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 exactly. It was targeted very much um, at that kind of freelancy, early stage creative. But we realised our sort of niche in the end was: what do you do if you want a flexible office environment, but you can't afford? You know, the average price for co-working desk in London is sort of six hundred and fifty quid a month. Mm-hmm. You know, so many bootstrapping startups can't afford that. Um, so what do you do if you want that, but you also don't want to travel outside of the M25 to get it? 
So our model is to provide uh, what we call the three P's. <laughs> um, people, which is the community side of it. Uh, place, so in kind of central desirable locations. And price, so to afford the, uh, where bootstrapping startups can afford, basically. Mm-hmm. So what is the sort of entry-level um, bootstrapping startup um, package that uh, you provide? Sure. Well, the most entry level is thirty pounds, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's our virtual office package. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and then a hot desk is uh, in our Chelsea venue, who's two hundred and twenty-five in our our Holland Park uh, Holland Park Avenue venue. It'd be about the same. So, two two five pounds a month. Um, yeah. So tell me about the, uh, the new Holland Park venue, which yeah. I understand is, is is due to come online. Um, what made you pick Holland Park, and, and um, can we try and understand the sort of um, process that goes on yeah. behind sort of choosing venues like that? Yeah, yeah, good question. Well, for us, we quickly realised that our goals as a business were aligned with the Mayor of London and local council's goals, i.e., support supporting early stage startups uh, and and freelancers. Um, you know, they obviously, the size of the market, the freelance and startup market is growing massively. People are being priced out locations. Um, the value they give in terms of social and economic value back to the local area is so important. So um, we realised that uh, councils were starting to uh, make it a requirement under Section 106 um, that developers can build their big swanky new developments mm-hmm. on the proviso that they give back some space or at some sort of level of support or subsidy to an affordable workspace provider. Mm-hmm. Enter stage right, mm-hmm. the refinery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we actually uh, won the space and um, attend the process uh, and through RBKC Council and the developer. Mm-hmm. And sorry, I just interrupt you. And then the idea is that we've then got... Some other venues lined up, a sort of pipeline of these with other developers, uh, other councils. We've had mixed um, experiences with working with council and, you know, they can be laden with bureaucracy, etc. And sure. um, how's your experience with um, Chelsea? It was a Chelsea investment Yeah, uh, Yeah, Chelsea and Kensington. 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 It's been good. You know, it's one of those ones where obviously there are, there are a lot of boxes mm-hmm. you have to take. And the nature, obviously, of starting a business is you just want to clatter on and get things done. Um, but it has been, a, you know, the true meaning of, of collaboration. <laughs> you know, I think that's the nature of it. You, anyone who sets up a co-working business, you know, in your heart of hearts, you believe in collaboration. Mm-hmm. And having people alongside us who care about the same stuff, it's a very different relationship than it would be with a traditional landlord who's yeah. obviously thinking, sat the other side of the table thinking, commercially how can i get the most out of you for 15 year lease yeah, yeah, yeah. our partners are looking and thinking how can we make this sustainable for you so 2020 has obviously been a, a pretty bizarre year um uh particularly as we sort of uh reassess um the way we work um how do you think this how do you think the the flexible working space yeah. has a reacted um, and be sort of repositioned itself. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, you know, the full repercussions, no one has a crystal ball. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll find out when it's in the rearview mirror, um, which we're hoping will be sooner rather than later. But 
for me, some of the things that I'm seeing are, because it's not all decrease of people leaving offices and not being offices, the phenomenon of work near home mm-hmm. is growing, right? So work from the office, work at home, but work near home is this huge, I know a few, um, and the, again, it's becoming a whole kind of um, category now of neighborhood workspaces. Mm-hmm. And I know of, you know, uh, speaking to someone who runs an amazing neighborhood workspace in Queen's Park mm-hmm. and he's got a waiting list, mm-hmm. you know, it's full. And and certainly for me, I live in Battersea mm-hmm. and my local kind of artisan cafe rammed full of people on their laptops. It's a good outcome there, isn't it? Because, you know, you are presumably not, you're, you're not wasting time on a sort of packed commuter train. There's a much shorter commute. Um how do you think the sort of dust will settle in terms of um, the sort of in a central office like we are here in London, uh, in Piccadilly, versus the work near home? Yeah. You see, what do you think is in what, what, what the difference be? Where do you think the balance will be? Do you yeah. think that there's the, the, um, when, the, when we're through the pandemic, do you think that we will, um, what percentage of offices yeah. do you think will be occupied when we go back to normal? Good question. I don't really know in terms of percentages, but I certainly think that, you know, a lot of the stuff, you do read some stuff on the internet that says, you know, the office will die, mm-hmm. it'll be gone. Mm-hmm. And I certainly don't believe that, not even for central places. Mm-hmm. All this stuff is just completely horses for courses. Mm-hmm. It depends on what your company goals are, your values, mm-hmm. your culture. Um, you know, and for me, and some people like, I don't like the commute. I like the fact I can hop on a Boris Pike or walk. Mm. Some people like the commute for an hour to switch off and listen to podcasts. Mm. So, and then, you know, centrally speaking, we were chatting about this mm. the other day that, um, you know, when I was now, I want a workspace near where I live mm. and where I'm home. Mm. I want as little commute as possible. I'm expecting a little baby daughter in March. You know, I, I, that that's my goals. When I left uni, if you can imagine being told you leave uni all excited to go to the bright lights, the big city, learn your trade, get mentored, experience a culture, the last thing in the world you want to be told is here's your MacBook. Now go and sit in your flat, yeah. which no doubt because your grad will be tiny. You know, so um, true. I mean, it affects different people in different stages and ages, and I think that I suppose that learning side of one's job and you know the osmosis that that um you know happens in, in work you know central yeah. offices like this uh, it's just so important um going back to monday works now you've you've kind of um pivoted to use the sort of startup term you've slightly pivoted the business in terms of um rather being a pure play um flexible work space you now do some more consultancy work mm. um First of all, why, why the pivot um, and, and who are the sort of clients that you're looking after? Yeah, so um, the flexible workspace uh, consultancy, Monday Works, is uh, the idea of running it alongside the refinery. Um, and uh, uh, the idea really, um, and the reason why I set it up, was uh, just seeing that the difference I suppose between property management and co-working management is very different mm. there's a big world between so obviously there's an overlap in terms of your managing facilities and um, of course 
But um, with so many people in real estate looking for looking to move into flexible workspace, the growing mm. demand obviously as it as a as a sector, um, it just made complete sense to me to um, set up a business that helped give them all the tools to do that from an operational perspective, as well as marketing and just all that. Yeah. And your view, what are the sort of challenges? What are the pinch points in setting up for, for um, you know your clients to set up a flexible working space? I mean, is it the technology? Um, is it the um, negotiating the lease? Where, where? What do you think the big, the major challenges? Um, well, again, the, the lease things are various. One client I worked for was a co-living business. And so they obviously help them find their first co-working space. And the lease is huge, right? Because um, more and more now management agreements are happening and to know the ins and outs of that and what you're committing to is, is big. So that that for sure. Um, technology, it's so, as an industry, it's become so advanced that the white label platforms and the simple plugins that you can have to run a multi-site co-working business, it's not that complicated really? or expensive. It's amazing. The, the platform's out there and it just shows you how far the industry's come that it does not cost very much. You could so DIY. You could do it with a tiny bit of tech cabin. I'm not very techy. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say that the, the technological barrier is very big. Um, but I think that uh, the operational cost for a flexible workspace, especially the co-working, you know, that very hot desking, dedicated desk, um, each person that comes in, as opposed to having, if you've got a big private office, you deal with one person, they've probably got their own office manager, it's simple. The more hot desk as co-working members you've got, you've got so many different points of contact and they've come maybe for soft reasons, right? A sense of community and, and events and stuff. So building all that in, it takes a huge amount of operational cost. Mm. So once you layer that in, you then need to be amazing at marketing and have a very distinct uh, brand proposition. Mm-hmm. What are the sort of pitfalls? What what traps do people fall into um, in terms of, of of marketing and getting their name out there? Where where do you think that people don't do it particularly well? Yeah, well, I know where we've done it badly. <laughs> I don't know how people. Well, why um, don't you talk about that? Then? Yeah, <laughs> no, I yeah. Why have you cocked up, Jamie? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think what's funny is that. It's very easy when you're setting up something like this to always be keeping an eye on the big guys mm. and trying to follow them. So the big guys, we work. Yeah. Uh, who else is, is operating? In? Gosh, we work. Uh, Tog, Mindspace. Though they a bit more of a boutique offering. Um, yeah, and um, obviously Spaces. Yeah. I'll ship from Regis. So too too much focus on them. What what's the pitfall with focusing on that? Well, we thought forever that our our main competitor was was WeWork, um, and then uh, and we were constantly. I probably wouldn't have admitted this at the time, but on some subconscious level, we were probably trying to be a less good version, you know, kind of a sort of rip off version at the beginning. And then it was amazing actually. We did one of these customer really kind of deep customer feedback um, surveys, for the company. And we, of course, discovered that all the reasons they liked us because we weren't, mm-hmm. we were. And that led us on a path to really, and it kind of sounds pretty cheesy, but to be ourselves and to realise that actually what you can offer as a small niche operator are things that the Globo co-working outfits can't offer. Can you give an example? <sighs> to be honest, it's very difficult to scale a real sense of community. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, 
um, we, we what we do a lot of the community, real community building stuff you need to do doesn't scale, and it adds value to your business, but um, you know it doesn't. It, and, and so that's largely why we want to kind of grow at a steady, sustainable rate. And our our, our plan is to have enough co-working because you do need scale for the economics to add up. Um, but you know, I guess when you go for the growth at all costs, um, it's very difficult to you you sort of get a bit of collateral damage in that way. Yeah. So we just do yeah personal fun relatable stuff, you know. And sometimes our budget wasn't the same, so people <laughs> we had a joke that. You know, connecting to the printers wasn't always the easiest thing at a last venue. But people didn't care because they're paying an amazing price in the middle of Chelsea and everyone knows each other. Everyone, you know, genuinely wants to go for a beer with one another. Everyone genuinely wants to work with one another. And that's where the real kind of collaboration happens. So. It's quite interesting because it's very difficult, difficult, I suppose, to value. But, it, you know, clearly there is a value there, um, which I suppose leads us on to, you know, you've Clearly, you've got backing from Kensington and Chelsea. Um, you know, they've backed you. Um, can you talk a little bit about the sort of fund, and I know you are mm-hmm. in the process of fundraising. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between managing the company and um, managing the sort of um, fundraising exercise? Interesting. I think, um, again, oh, I hit on the word collaborative. I've got a partner. Um, who uh, we both very much do the financial side of things mm-hmm. together. Um, and it is a different skill set. I mean, yeah, when you run a co-working business, really what you're good at and what you want to get on with is operating and managing co-working exactly. businesses. And so two bits that um, uh, can possibly detract from, the, the, from that are the property side of things and the finances. But I think essentially you know, finding people who get the vision um, makes the, the raise a lot easier. Um, and yeah, our, our proposition isn't wildly complicated. The investors we've spoken to have said, oh, it's the simplest thing in the world, you know, compared to some of the complex things that they invest mm-hmm. in. So I think yeah. that's one thing that helps. But so how much of your time at the moment is taking up um, in sort of devising pitches and, and, mm. and sort of working out how to articulate what you're trying to do rather than actually operating? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, well, good, good question. Um, I think for m- myself at the moment, um, from the refinery perspective, uh, it's mainly raising the money right now. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 it is a... Uh, it will, hopefully, we're just at the beginning of it. Mm. So it'll be a short, sharp burst. What doors have you been knocking on? Mm. I mean, on this podcast clearly but you're um, you know have you looked at the crowdfunding sites have you looked yeah. at the sort of smaller VCs have you what, what sort of doors are you um, sort of crashing down investment proposition for us is quite unusual because typically the people we come, come across in that startup world are people who want to invest in a tech business write a £50,000 cheque and they're people who either are hoping it will become a unicorn or they might lose it you know um, they kind of have that uh, excitement for some high growth possibility or they're like well 50,000 it's not going to so like an option basically it's an optionality um, investment like they could either lose it all or yeah you know, yeah yeah. Uh, it, it, yeah and our proposition we're looking for uh, debt 
with it, my dad. Um, and because of the rather unique setup between ourselves and uh, the lease between ourselves and, and the council, um, and also because of uh, significant funding, grant funding we've received, that will actually fund about 65% of the project. The last 35% of the project we're looking for via debt is, um, well, of course, I would argue is practically no risk. Mm-hmm. But we're a startup mm-hmm. still. So um, by that nature and by the fact that uh, we need reasonably flexible terms, um, it means that the deal is great in terms of fairly high interest on, uh, um, Why did you? What, what was the sort of decision process for going down the debt route rather than the equity route? Yeah, again, for us, it's more because um, uh, there are great returns to debt, and it's steady and assured and reliable. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, uh, these sort of quick, high-growth tech businesses can't promise any returns particularly soon, mm-hmm. but the idea is that they might be worth billions. For us, we can promise returns soon. But we don't have plans to do that high growth. You know, we're much we're steadier, sustainable growth model. So it just made sense for our model, and and the support with our partners and and the local council. And then going back to the sort of question on scalability, um, do you for sort of foresee um, sort of growth in, in perhaps regional towns? And we've talked a lot on this podcast about you know um, country versus town property yeah. and whether or not you know we are going to see a sort of mass redistribution of wealth to the sort of um, provinces, yeah. make all them. Um, are you looking in the Bristols and the Baths and the Liverpools and Manchesters? Yeah, well, that's what's so, what's so interesting is that the uh, kind of clients I'm working with, with Monday Works, um, a lot of them seem to be outside of London. Um, there's a guy who's doing a really exciting proposition at the moment who, who is going for the high growth, um, you know, uh, equity investment route. And he's looking at um, commuter towns, you know, hop on a train for half an hour, even an hour outside London, um, and providing that kind of high quality co-working spaces in, in those sort of areas. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, I'm, and I've been on um, talking a lot randomly with uh, an outfit called the Kent Co-working Collective, who are... Uh, there's rural and town-based co-working that is growing and, and receiving a lot of attention at the moment. So I think that's going to definitely happen. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, it, it, speaking from our offices here in Piccadilly, um, you know, we have converted to um, 100% flexible working. Our model requires at least some of us to be working yeah. from home or working somewhere else. Um, do you think the... Um, co-working industry uh, is ready to pick up that slack. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's, again, what's so interesting, and we were talking earlier about uh, it being a symptom of how much the co-working world's grown by how many specific platforms technologically are for small operators now. Another symptom of what you're saying there is I think that that will be the case, that these smaller neighbourhood workspaces will pick up the slack, Mm -hmm. is that the broker outfits and some of the these new platforms like there's a company called desana.io i think is the website and they pull all co-working spaces together and then um sell the offering to corporates mm. so um you know your company would be able to sign up to desana and then your your member your your um the workforce here would have access to any of the workspaces 
signed up on that platform for a monthly fee. Um, and those, Tassana is one example, but there are loads propping up all over the place, which I think is evidence that, that that's happening. Yeah, this is a this is a huge opportunity for a mass redistribution of wealth out of dare I say it, the southeast and yeah. into the the um, other areas of of the UK. Yeah. Um, where do you see um, your business, not the consulting business, but um, uh, where do you see the refinery in in five years' time? I see us as um, having a collection, small collection of maybe three or four uh, neighbourhood workspaces in in um, kind of accessible central London locations. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, at the moment the space we're we're launching end of next year on Holland Park Avenue is. Eight and a half thousand square foot, up 130 capacity of 120 people, 130. With that capacity, how many members would that, um, or is that the number of members? No, so capacity, um, I say it ranges slightly more aggressive, is 55 square foot per person, 60 square foot per person, mm-hmm. and then um, the less aggressive is sort of more 70, 80. Obviously, co working is all fairly high density. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, yeah, 120, 130, 150 uh, people on the 10,000 square foot size. And would you expect that your sort of clients, or the, I don't know what clients is probably not the word you use, members, members I do apologize, yeah. members, do you expect the members um, to live in close proximity or where's, the, where's your sort of, is it location specific? We would expect them to be fairly local, yeah walking distance and uh, to be honest as well yeah it's it, it's partly we one of our goals one of the reasons that you know again that we're aligned with the local councils is helping the people in those local areas so that they don't need to travel miles away to work so they have somewhere to work mm-hmm. so um, we try and specifically make room for the local startup and freelancer well and already our kind of waiting list for the next venue is, is full of people who uh live in that kind of West London area, you know, Shepherd's Bush around Holland Park and stuff and say, you know, oh, this is perfect for me, I'll be able to walk straight in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. So it is, it's sort of location specific. Yeah. What do you think, what makes a, a, a great um, co-working space and, and maybe you're too self-deprecating because you want to talk about your own failings, but when you walk into other co-working spaces and you, um, what sort of like, turns you off do you see what I mean? What, yeah. what, what, what's the sort of secret sauce? That's a very good question. Um, and what I feel is like kind of my, <laughs> sounds quite grandiose, but my like life career purpose is... What, Sorry, what's your life career yeah, purpose, yeah, yeah. Jamie? That's that's I don't want to say life purpose because <laughs> it's, you know, it's not... But um, what makes an environment where you're buzzing to come in on Monday morning? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, which I, I love that question. How do you create an environment where people are buzzing that you know you're not so excited for Friday evening, but really excited for Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, part of that is what you actually do yourself. If you love what you do, then you could be sat in a tin can somewhere. But mm-hmm. I think um, uh, so much of it, it, it. It's funny because it, it the, the the boring answer is kind of everything, right? In that, if you go to a workspace and it's all 
free beer and ping pong tables and vibey music mm. you might not actually just be able to get any work done mm. and and there's no use in having all these wonderful amenities and wellness pods nap pods all these things if the internet isn't utterly robust mm. and like you know you've got to get the boring stuff right yeah um so people are there to work and first and foremost you're creating an environment where you know our guys would be people who would be distracted working from a cafe or home internet doesn't work properly and also want the community element. Mm. So first and foremost for us is how do we create an environment that where they can do deep focused work? Mm. It can not be distracting. Mm. And now especially everyone's realized at home, wow, phone on airplane mode, um, close the door behind me, I'm really motoring through. I think now there'll be a much less tolerance you know, in co-working spaces for places that do maybe feel a little bit like a nightclub. Mm. Yeah. You know, ultimately, you want to create a space where someone can do the best work of their life mm. and then have the opportunity to be around other like-minded individuals and have that kind of... Um, so like-minded, I'll just pick you up on like-minded. I mean, do you therefore negatively screen for people? Would you say, okay, you, yeah. work, for, uh, you work in finance, Doug? You can bugger off. <laughs> yeah. You can say that if you like. Yeah, no, no. It, well, what's so funny is that... Um, we we there are spaces that curate it more like that, um, and it goes it goes against all of your um, optimizing your sales funnel, I suppose, because you just want. But um, I think for us, we wouldn't ever be uh, unwelcoming to anyone because we realise that we don't really care what people do. Um, it's more whether they will enjoy the the atmosphere. So, um, you know, there might be people who are, are perfectly aligned in terms of the you know, type of members we have, you know, whether the branding agency is a classic, one of our members, um, and, but they don't fit in with the, you know, with, with our particular vibe. But we've also had people who do things that you might typically see as quite square or, you know, someone setting up on your accounting firm who are brilliant for us. So we really don't give two hoots what someone does. Mm. And we don't say no one can join unless... They seem very offensive, but what we do is, we, yeah, we we, and we I can't. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in the selection process. We it? have had to evict two people. Before. Really, what form? I'll tell you in a second. But the um, all we do as a process is we make sure that we have a very specific tour management procedure. Then we introduce people always to people who are classic refinery members to get vibe, and we just make sure that we wave our flag loud and high. And then we don't have to say no to people because they won't like it if it's not for them. Mm-hmm. If it is for them, they'll love it. Mm-hmm. And it's that simple. Um, evictions. Um, we had a... Yeah, I love getting to Terry Dangerous Doji here. Um, you can always edit it out, Terry. Yeah, so yeah, good, good. I think um, what's funny is that, is that um, most people are too concerned about being too loud and disruptive that they don't... Uh, 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 they're overly worried about it. Where I said, no, you 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 can relax, take calls at your desk, etc. But you do get the old person who, um, and of course, one thing is 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 just loud. The other thing is is uh, uh, aggressiveness. So we did have one gentleman once who was bizarre setup. He was charming to your face. He suddenly hop on the call and talk in the most aggressive manner that made everyone around him scared for their lives. Mm. We had to have a word with him and, and say, look. It, 
got to turn yeah. it down. Yeah. I, mean, I can think of people in our office who do the same thing, Jamie. So uh, yeah. I guess it's nice to have a license to be able to chuck them out. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, of course, you know, a bit of, a bit of any community, you know, mm-hmm. is, is uh, uh, a bit messy. And, you know, we, we all have our, our off days. But I think it's, it's more that um, if we sort of have a three-strike system and if someone... Um, isn't mindful of, of the community in, in yeah. Over seven years, we've had one or two people, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe a final sort of wrap-up question. What, what advice would you give to sort of younger entrepreneurs who maybe are coming out of school or maybe coming out of university? Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a good idea. Maybe take yourself back to 2013 when you started the refinery. What advice would you give to them? I think the great thing about, I, 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 someone was telling me, a sort of relationship expert was telling me the other day that um, your amygdala in your brain, you know, the bit of the fight or flight, isn't fully developed until you're 26, 27. So I think there's a massive advantage that, you know, you do crazy stuff when you're in your 20s, which is great because you cannot overthink it because there is a chance of failure. So I would say probably one of the biggest things is, you know, and I've known friends who are like, gosh, if I had known everything I know now, I wouldn't have probably set my business up at the beginning. But there's almost an advantage to that. Mm. You know, it's the cheesiest startup in the world. Just go for it. Mm. But um, so that's one thing I would say is, is uh, clatter on. Um, the, the other thing I would say is I'm... Uh, Our previous guest, by the way, in the same question, he said his was start... Um, uh, which is similar to yours, clatter on. Clatter on, I mean, yeah. I prefer clatter on, I think. Clatter on, yeah. The, the other thing as well is, is that it can be, it can be isolating and, 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 and you're, you're constantly figuring out a bunch of things you have a clue, and especially when you're at the beginning of a startup, you have to be accounts, finance, creative, all of it. Get allies. You know, for me, I, especially as an independent co-working operator, over the years, I... I'm very liberal and open with our information, our knowledge, whatever, with other co-working operators who have similar values. They've also then been amazing back to me. And you effectively have, I have about five different peer mentors, other founders that run co-working businesses. And it's one of the most amazingly valuable and useful things. People who are in the trenches experiencing exactly the same niche problems and want to help you and, and, and I'm inspired by their outfits as well so yeah allies mm-hmm. um, and you how know. else did you do because I've heard that before the, the loneliness of, of starting a venture sort of on your own or even with a partner you know it can feel um, you're sort of treading or walking these very sort of long and winding roads and what other sort of tools are there in your armory to sort of deal with that the, the loneliness thing yeah yeah, well, um, uh, again, I, I, I <laughs> one of uh, my best friends, a guy called Ed, and my wife, I think now, knows as much about co-working as I do. Because, <laughs> you know, when I'm scared of doing something or worried, I run everything past them. Um, and uh, I think it's important to have, as I say on that loneliness thing, to have uh, support but people who know what you're trying to achieve, right? So they aren't just going to pick all the detail of your stuff, whatever, and realise that maybe there are moments where, you know, you need the the, the accountability and other moments you just need the encouragement. Um, so again, it's just getting those people around you. Uh, obviously, co-working does that a lot. Um, but yeah. Jamie Dundas, good luck with the fundraise. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Doug. 
Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, and our guest this week, Jamie Dundas. If you want any more information about what Jamie Dundas is up to, then head to mondayworks.co.uk. And if you've enjoyed this episode, or indeed any of the other episodes, then like us and subscribe. Tell your friends.